So, in Exodus chapter 25, we're going to be in 26, but to look at things in context, um, the Lord uh, tells the Israelites to make him a sanctuary. So the order comes to build the tabernacle. And in that, he wants the Ark of the Covenant built, specifically describes the lid or the mercy seat. And the two cherubim uh, describes the table for the showbread that is to be manufactured. And then the lampstand that is to give light to the inside of this tabernacle. Then in verse 26, or chapter 26 rather, verse 1, the Lord continues by speaking through Moses and saying, Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine woven linen and blue, purple, scarlet thread with artistic designs of cherubim, you shall weave them. Now, I just want to make a point while we're there in verse 1 that, uh, you know, religious imagery is not forbidden by the Scripture. If you've got a picture of Jesus in your home, you know, clearly it's not an accurate depiction of who Jesus is. It relays the idea of Jesus. It's fine to have that. Here you have pictures, images of angels that are going to be woven into the fabric of this tabernacle. God wants heavenly imagery. We talked about the fact that there are images of the angels on top of the Ark of the Covenant. He wants their minds inspired. He wants them thinking of heaven. But in this, he keeps giving that order. These things need to be made exactly according to how I have shown you. So you don't get the freedom for artistic interpretation and to just make up whatever you want to. The things that the Lord has specifically shown them, he wants them to create them. And then in that, it is to inspire them for worship. They aren't to worship the images. That's the thing that's forbidden. The idolatrous practices of the nations that surround them are to create some artistic thing and then to worship it, to pray to it. Uh, God forbids that, wants nothing of the kind, but he also understands the effect of beautiful artwork to the human heart and mind. He has that incorporated in his worship. Verse 2, the length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits. Uh, 42 feet is what you're uh, looking at there. Cubit is about a foot and a half. And the width of each curtain, four cubits. So six feet is what you're talking about. These are going to be 42 feet long, six feet high is what's being described. And every one of the curtains shall have the same measurements. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. You shall make loops of blue yarn on the edge of the curtain on the selvage of one side. So all on the same side. And likewise, you shall do on the outer edge of the other curtain of the second set. Fifty loops you shall make in the one curtain. And fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is on the end of the second set, that the loops may be clasped to one another. And you shall make 50 clasps of gold 
and a couple of the curtains together with the glass so that it may be one tabernacle. So these panels that he has them constructing, ornate, all of this embroidered work in them, and they are to all be fastened together. What God is describing is this tent that's going to be constructed where the Ark of the Covenant will be inside, the priests will burn incense to the Lord, the candles or the lampstands will burn, and the showbread will be contained. So this is the panels that will make up the structure of the, especially the uh, interior that can be seen. 26.7 You shall also make a curtain of goat's hair to be a tent over the tabernacle. You shall make 11 curtains. Now before I move on, there are a number of confusions that occur because of the original language. And it goes through several different changes throughout history into Latin and German and English. And now the scholars want to argue over, you know, what kind of skins are being used here. You know, in the end, uh, we could be probably more accurate than what we have depicted here. But it's animal skin. That's what the Lord is driving at. It isn't so significant as to what type. And certainly to sit around and have great theological debates about what form of animal skin uh, is not what the Lord intended for us. Okay, So they're building this very primitive, very rustic uh, tent or tabernacle to worship. It's going to be very ornate in the process, but they're using these animal skins. Now, We'll talk about the animal skins because there are panels that are put up. And what was the purpose of those in, in a few moments? So in verse 8, the length of each curtain shall be 30 cubits. Again, 45 feet. The width of each curtain shall be 4 cubits, 6 feet. The 11, uh, and the 11 curtains shall, be all, shall all have the same measurements. You shall couple 5 curtains by themselves and 6 curtains by themselves. You shall double over the sixth curtain on the uh, forefront of the tent, and you shall make 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in one set, and 50 loops on the edge of the curtain of the second set, and you shall make 50 bronze clasps. Put the clasps into the loops and couple the tent together. So these attachments with the coupling to be tied into the edge of the panel, these uh, clasps that are described, and those will hook together to assemble these panels together. Couple the tent together, then it may be uh, one. The remnant that remains of the curtain of the tent, and half the curtain that remains, shall hang over the back of the tabernacle, or be folded around as it is. And a cubit on one side, and a cubit on the other side, of what remains of the length of the curtain of the tent, shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle on this side and on that side to cover it. So really looking to bring the panels around and wrap everything very closed so you get that building sensation uh, once this thing is assembled. 14, you shall also make a covering of ram's skin dyed red for the tent and a covering of badger skin over that. Uh, part of this whole process in assembling it the way that the Lord is doing is to create that sense of isolation. 
the priests that are inside, they're entering the presence of the Lord. And, and so the idea that the outside world is getting shut out, there's, there's a quietness. You know, isn't, isn't that always relaxing when you're dealing with life's chaos and you don't even realize how agitated it is and you finally get a moment to pull the door closed and just experience the quiet? You know, when your mind can calm down, you, know, you didn't realize how tense you were. This is sort of what the Lord is intending for these priests. Uh, that progressively as they move into this tabernacle, it is going to become more and more beautiful and more and more the sense of the presence of the Lord. The simplicity of what they're experiencing and the beauty is supposed to inspire that worship. Verse 15, and for the tabernacle you shall make the boards of acacia wood, so hardwood, standing upright. Now, this is the real interior structure that we're talking about here. Ten cubits shall be the length of a board, and a cubit and a half uh, shall be the width. So 15 feet high and roughly two and a quarter feet wide is uh, what you're looking at there. Two uh, tenions uh, shall be in each board for binding one to another. They're going to be clasped together. Thus, you shall make for all the boards of the tabernacle. And you shall make the boards of the tabernacle. Twenty boards for the south side. You shall make forty sockets of silver under the twenty boards. Two sockets under each of the boards for its two tenons. And for the second side of the tabernacle, the north side, there shall be twenty boards. And there are forty sockets of silver. Two sockets under each of the boards. So if you're thinking this thing through and you're saying, wow, this is pretty complex. Uh, somebody ought to build this thing so we can see what it looks like. It's been done. So uh, we were able to take the kids uh, on a field trip years ago. And uh, I believe that we were in, where were we, Virginia? And we went to this replica. It's a small museum and they have all of this set up. Things make a lot more sense when you're looking at it, when you can actually see how this stuff is assembled. The intention is uh, that when they move, they're able to break this thing all down and take it with them. Everything needs to be designed in such a way that when it's put together and assembled, it's extremely tough. It's going to stand there in the wind. It's going to stand there through the heat. It's going to be able to endure and provide the people with this place to worship. Yet, when it's time to leave, this whole thing can break down, be taken apart, folded up, packed, and travel. Uh, the Lord wants his tabernacle to be with his people always. They're moving, he's moving. It's more that he's moving and they're moving with him, rather than you know the Lord following them. So these boards... That make up the tabernacle, you shall make the boards of the tabernacle, 20 boards to the south. You shall make 40 sockets, as we read, under the 20 boards, two sockets. So these stand, these tenions and these uh, sockets, they lock together. Second side of the tabernacle, the north side, there shall be 20 boards. And there are 40 sockets of silver, two sockets under each of the boards. So one board being held up by two of these sockets that they stand in. For the far side of the tabernacle westward, you shall make six boards. So it's long, it's narrow, it's the idea. You have the long sides, and now we're being described sort of the westward end. 
and the eastward's entrance. So you shall also make two boards of the two back corners of the tabernacle. They shall be coupled together at the bottom, and they shall be coupled together at the top by one ring. Thus it shall be for both of them. They shall be for the two corners. So there shall be eight boards with their sockets of silver, 16 sockets, two sockets under each of the boards. These are the corner plates. So you have the two boards that fasten together as the corner and lock the entire wall to the back wall. So you've got that nice corner solid seal in the process. Strength and beauty is what the Lord is looking for here. In verse 26, you shall make bars of acacia wood. So again, the Lord is uh, doing a few things. Um, <clears throat> both the, the boards in the panels that are on this, the, uh, the walls for the Ark of the Covenant that were built, uh, we're going to see that as they build the altar where the sacrifices are to be made, everything's made of wood and then overlaid. And there's, you know, the purpose of lightness for that, that as they assemble and disassemble this, it's easier to carry. But within that picture, the Lord tells us in the New Testament that part of this picture is humility. That while there's you know, great value and great beauty to this, there's also a heart of wood inside each one of these things. You know, it doesn't have the value that the world, would like something that's solid gold, ooh, they kind of shudder, wow, the value. Well, then you dig inside and you find that it's just wood and the world is kind of disappointed. I thought it was solid. You know, mentally, the world always wants things that the Lord doesn't want. He wants the beauty that's there, but the value, the value that's in us, right? The beauty that he created, great. But the value that's in us is our humility. If we'll allow the Lord to create humility within us. I mean, that's the goal he's shooting for on every one of our lives, right? We, we can throw ourselves on the rock that is Jesus Christ and be broken in humility, or we can resist in our pride and wait until that stone falls upon us and grinds us to powder. The interior of the believer should be known by humility. The interior of all of these articles of worship has the humble origin of wood. Yeah, ornate gold on the outside. Very beautiful. The heart of the thing is really quite humble. Make it according to the pattern. We hear that. Look at verse 26. You shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the boards on one side of the tabernacle, five for the bar, five bars for the boards on the other side of the tabernacle, five bars for the boards of the side of the tabernacle for the far side westward. The middle bar shall pass through the midst of the boards from end to end. You shall overlay the boards with gold. Make their rings of gold as holders for the bars and overlay the bars with gold. You shall raise up the tabernacle according to its pattern, which you have shown on the mountain. So these panels all stood up 15 feet high, two and a quarter feet wide, locked together as they assemble a wall, but then a bar inserted down the length of these things through it to create that center strength also. You've got the coupler top and bottom, but now you've got one through the middle. God really is assembling a very strong house in this whole thing, but it's portable. It needs to be able to move 
so that the people can move and follow the leading of the Lord. So uh, here, these bars that have uh, been made in the tabernacle that's being assembled with them, the rings that hold them overlaid with gold, you shall raise up the tabernacle according to its pattern, which was shown you on the mountain. Don't alter from that. God is saying, I showed you how it was supposed to be built, and that's how I want it to be built. Now, <clears throat> you know, you have to sort of take a spiritual look at this in our, you know, approach to the New Testament. We're hearing Jesus Christ say that he will build his church. You know, upon this rock will I build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Well, how is his church constructed? You know, this tabernacle has very specific directions. How is his church constructed? Well, uh, there's a long list of things that the Lord has laid out for us. You can make note right here, look on your own, at Acts chapter 2, verse 42. There is a recipe for how the Lord was building the church in that first century once it was being birthed. They continued steadfastly. Number one, in the apostles' doctrine. They were appearing at the temple every single day, and the apostles were there teaching them the word of God. One of the key features in the assembly and construction of the church was that the word of God is central. You know, The church drifting away from the word of God today. It's amazing to me to listen to the arguments that people have. You know, listening to pastors speak publicly and publish articles where they say, you know, uh, the more we study the word, we understand that it's not relevant for the people of today. This, this book has never stopped being relevant. You know, the, the people that have that approach are really doing what the scripture has said, trying to shake off the word of God. You know, for the church to be drifting away from the word of God at all is very, very destructive. Very destructive. You know, I'm having a conversation with you know, a woman this week, and she's very disturbed because both of her parents, you know, they're in their older years, and they used to attend solid churches, but church to them has sort of become a social club, and now they're attending, uh, you know, the Universalist Unitarian Church. Just be real clear. The Universalist Unitarian is not a church or a Christian. Either one. It's an assembly of people who some of them have Christian ideology. Most of them do not. They're all excited as a congregation because this is here in Maine. Uh, they've just elected uh, two new pastors. Husband and wife. Some of you have already cringing. The problem is the wife's the pastor, and the husband is actually a woman also, who's had a sex change and is going through the whole process. You know, she has a beard. She she is presenting herself as a male. This is here in Maine. They're excited about it. Look, you got a social club that wants to do such things. Our society allows for that. Our culture allows for that. 
I'm not endorsing it in any way. But the church, this is no part of the church. This has nothing to do with the church. Right? There are people who claim that title, oh, we're part of the church, and they stick that on. This, this is not the church. Why, why, why are they that far gone? Because they've departed from the word of God. You leave the word of God behind, and you're just left to create whatever you want to. The opinions of man takes over. So here, you know, the Lord is very specifically saying, I want you to build this according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. We have all kinds of pattern throughout the scripture that we can read, know, and understand that tells us how to behave, how to function, how to act within the church and within the culture outside our walls. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to make it up. You know, they don't have to sit around and go, now when we assemble these walls, you know, I've noticed that the middle, everything else is locked nice, but the middle's all floppy. What are we going to do about that? They don't have to create anything. God has said, no, I've got a plan for that, and this is how I want you to build it, just like this. When you hit certain things that need guidance, turning to the world for opinions, turning to other things for the answer is incorrect. The answer has to come from the pages of God's word. Our lives need to be built according to the pattern that was shown us from the word of God. So, verse 31, you shall make a veil woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine woven linen. It shall be woven with an artistic design of cherubim. God wants these angels everywhere in his construction. You shall hang it upon the four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be gold. Upon four sockets of silver, you shall hang the veil from the clasps. Then you shall bring the ark of the testimony in there, behind the veil. The veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy place. You shall put the mercy seat, the lid, upon the ark of the testimony in the holy place. And you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand across from the table on the side of the tabernacle toward the south. And you shall put the table on the north side. So very specific arrangements even as to how this tabernacle is to be constructed. When you walk in, table on the left, lampstand on the right, Walk through the veil on the back and you're into the Holy of Holies where the presence of the Lord would be experienced once a year by the high priest. We get explanation through the scriptures that the veil that's being described here is a symbol of our sin. God's presence is behind that veil with the Ark of the Testimony, the Ark of the Covenant. The priests go in there, as I said, once a year. The common people cannot. The only way the priest can go in there is with the blood from the sacrifice. He brings that in, pours it on the mercy seat as an offering before the Lord for the sins of Israel. But there's no free access to the presence of God until, right, Jesus Christ's death. At Jesus Christ's death, according to the scripture, that veil was torn from the top to the bottom. Now, there are great explanations uh, that are made 
about how big the veil was at that time when Jesus Christ passed away. And what you find is there's a lot of debate about that whole curtain and its design. I don't care how big it was. Right? I grew up as a kid. Uh, every fall, my mother <clears throat> would change the main curtains in our house to winter curtains. You know, old drafty house. Some of you guys remember what New England was like before Anderson windows. You know, <clears throat> got to have the winter curtains on. They're thick. They're heavy. You know, it's like a blanket in front of the window. Put your hands above it. You can feel the air around it below. It. But it's not just moving through the house. You're not going to grab a hold of that heavy winter curtain and just be like, I'm going to rip this apart. Heavy fabric woven this way outshines that. This is a woolen fabric top to bottom. And it is heavy and it is very difficult to even move, let alone to tear. The barrier of sin between the human race and God was torn out of the way at Jesus Christ's death from top to bottom. Man didn't get involved and start pulling on the bottom to remove that. God reached down and tore that thing from top to bottom. You go home and dwell on the Lord's strength and his knowledge and his insight into creating the veil that symbolized sin so that it could be torn theatrically to show us the barrier has been removed out of the way. Anybody that tries to put the barrier back in the way, hear me all the way out in this. They are trying to put back into place what Jesus Christ has removed in order for the human race to have access to God. You start putting priests in the way so that people have to go to priests in order to get to God, then you're putting the barrier back in place. Jesus Christ moved all of that out of the way so that people could have free access to the Lord. You alone can go home with your Bible, with prayer, the guidance of the Holy Spirit. You can get everything you need. Amen. That's the whole picture right there. You don't have to. People call me up all, all the time. Pastor Will, can you pray for me? Surely. Love to pray for you. But don't feel like or act like, oh, I got to get to Pastor Will. Otherwise, my prayers don't get through. Your prayers get through the same as my prayers get through by the grace of God. That's how we're heard. This, this moved out of the way is one of the most singularly important symbols in all of our faith. For people to try and put it back in any way is literally to interfere with the shed blood of Jesus Christ and the work it performed. His shed blood removed that veil. Anybody puts that back in any way, then they're interfering with the work of Jesus Christ. So, here, you shall hang the veil from the class. You shall bring the Ark of the Testimony in there, as we described. The mercy sheet shall be on it. 
You shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand, the table on the north side. You shall make a screen, verse 36 says. That would be more like a curtain, but it's a thin curtain. So make a screen for the door of the tabernacle, the entryway. Woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread. Fine woven linen made by a weaver. You shall make the screen five for the screen five pillars of acacia wood. Overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be gold. You shall cast five sockets of bronze for them. So this setting these in the sockets in order to cause them to have that you know base and foundation footing and stability. So now in verse 1 of chapter 27, we see the altar for burnt offerings being described here. You shall make an altar of acacia wood. You should try to get a piece or an article made from acacia wood at some point in your life as a Christian. Uh, very hard wood, uh, really interesting grain. Um, you know, the Lord asks for that to be used in his construction Repeatedly. So here, the acacia wood, five cubits long, five cubits wide. That's uh, seven and a half feet being described there. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits, or uh, four and a half feet. Verse two You shall make its horns on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. Now, we're hearing now these statements about bronze. And repeatedly throughout the scripture, things have symbols or they symbolize something else. And bronze throughout the scripture and brass uh, represents judgment, God bringing his judgment. A couple of uh, cross references to help us understand a little bit. Speaking of Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 1, Verse 15, as John sees him, he says that his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace and his voice was like the sound of rushing water. So dwelling on that idea of his feet being like bronze and the idea of judgment being in his feet, you could be left thinking like, what is that all about? So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 63. There's a passage just six verses that we need to read together. Here in Isaiah chapter 63, it says, Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Bozrah? Now, we're going to see that the dyed garments that he has is the idea of stained garments, that as he's been treading out the wine press, the uh, grapes have been splashing upon him. And then he gives us the explanation of what the wine press is and how it's filled. So he died with garments from Bozrah, uh, this one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save, why is your apparel red? and your garments like one who treads the winepress. The answer, verse 3, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the people, or the peoples, no one was with me, 
for I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes, for the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. I looked, but there was no one to help, and I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me, and my own fury it sustained me. I have trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. Judgment, wrath, God's anger poured out on a human race that has rejected him. That's what's being described. So the altar where the offerings are going to be consumed is to be made of bronze. God's judgment is met on those animals, upon those sacrifices that are performed. The people are supposed to understand. This is a grave moment. I belong under the knife. I belong burning on that altar. And that animal has taken my punishment. Jesus Christ becomes that sheep who takes the punishment of the entire human race as he marches up that hill and suffers the consequences. The brass, the bronze, the judgment of God seen here on the altar where the sacrifices are consumed. Looking at verse 3, he continues by saying, Also, you shall make its pans to receive its ashes, its shovels, its basins, and its forks, and its fire pans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. Everything associated with this altar is judgment. Everything associated with Jesus Christ's death is judgment. Judgment for what? Because the man is innocent. Judgment for my sin. Right? I've talked about it before. When Jesus Christ was being scourged, the Romans were the ones that scourged him. You'll sometimes hear that Jesus was whipped with, you know, 39 stripes. Not true. That was the practice of the Jews. They had it contained within their law that to apply 40 stripes to a man while whipping him was excessive. That it was cruel. So within their law, they would apply 39 stripes. Less than the one. You know, incredibly merciful. If you're counting those stripes as you receive them, you lose, you know, count somewhere around one, you know. Your flesh is being torn open. It's a horrible experience. Jesus Christ was whipped for two to five minutes because that was the method of the Romans. And the Romans used that to, to invite people to confess their crime. So they would fasten you to the stakes and they would lay that first stripe into you, wrap it right around your body, cat of nine tails, you know, glass and bone and metal on all of those strands embedded in your flesh, rip it away. And you're going to howl like you can't believe. And then they'll just step up and quietly say, is there anything you want to tell me? You want to make your confession at this point? Right? 
One of the problems about invoking torture in trying to accomplish a confession is when you create pain, people will confess no matter what. Jesus Christ has nothing to confess, you guys. Think about that, right? They whipped me, I can start at my childhood and just give you a long list of confession. You know what I'm saying? Where do you want to stop? <clears throat> Jesus Christ experiencing that torture, he has nothing to offer. He doesn't have any confession that he can make. Well, I mean, he can make your confession. Because he's taking on my sin. He can confess my sins there in that moment. All of what Jesus Christ received was wrath, punishment, judgment, everything associated, right? We can't look at Jesus Christ's punishment and go, well, I mean, okay, maybe he didn't deserve the crucifixion, but he's kind of a jerk. So, you know, he at least deserves one of those punches in the mouth that he got along. Nothing, nothing about his experience in that belonged to him. It belonged to me and you. It's all wrath. It's all punishment. Everything about it is deserving. So God is saying right here, oh, the image of the punishment, that needs to be all brass. Everything needs to be bronze. Needs to reflect the punishment. You shall make a grate for it, a network of bronze. And on the network, so inside, you shall make four bronze rings at its corners. You shall put it under the rim of the altar beneath, so inside in such a way that it supports what's inside being burned. In the rim of the altar beneath, that the network may be midway up the altar, so suspended or set inside that way. You shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, overlay them with bronze, the poles shall be put on the rings, the poles shall be on the two sides of the altar to bear it. You shall make it hollow with boards as it was shown you on the mountain, so shall they make it. So again, that pattern as you saw. Now this statement, hollow with boards, uh, the commentators say it seems to have been a kind of framework and to have had nothing solid on the inside. The only covering uh, with the grating on the top, this rendered it more light and portable. So empty box is the idea with the grate halfway down inside. Ash and things can fall down through. You can have the fire, the wood, the offering on top. Then, you know, pick it right up when you're done. Clean all of the ash and everything out from underneath and set it back down. The poles here for convenience. Again, very systematic in how the Lord is developing all of this. In verse 9 of chapter 27, it says, You shall also make the court of the tabernacle. So now this is the surrounding around the tabernacle. For the south side, there shall be hangings for the court made of fine woven linen. So these are going to be like long panels of fabric. 100 cubits long for one side. That's 150 feet long. Uh, I think last time I measured the kitchen door out back to the front of the building was 100 feet. So half of that again, 150 feet. 
uh, in its length that's being described here. 20 pillars and their 20 sockets shall be bronze. So this is the structure to hold it. The hooks of the pillars and their bands shall be silver. Likewise, along the length of the north side, there shall be hangings 100 cubits long with its 20 pillars and their 20 sockets of bronze. And the hooks, the pillars, and their bands of silver. If you're not realizing this, this is a very beautiful structure. This is the sort of thing in experiencing it really catches the eye, and the intricacy of the work is sort of awe-inspiring. 2712, and along with the width of the court on the west side shall be hangings of 50 cubits with their 10 pillars and their 10 sockets. The width of the court on the east side shall be 50 cubits, so 75 feet. The hanging on one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits, so 22 and a half feet, with their three pillars and their three sockets. The other side shall be hangings of 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three sockets. So I know you're all headed home to build this thing out of tarps and boards in the yard just to see what it looks like. 2716, for the gate of the court, there shall be a screen 20 cubits long, 30 feet that is, woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine woven linen made by a weaver. Look, yeah, 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 lots of people know how to weave. You know, people weave at home. You know, there, there's all kinds of, no, I want this done by highly skilled artisans, is what the Lord is saying. The people that you incorporate to weave these panels, when it's done, it shouldn't look like it was done by the kindergarten class. It, it, you know, the Lord would appreciate that on his own. But he's saying we need to incorporate the people of the finest skill in this process. There's something to be said about that, the way the Lord gifts people and then wants them to be used. Made by a weaver. It shall have four pillars and four sockets. Now, you think about each of these things that's being described, these either wood or solid you know, precious metals at the foot, the boards lock in, and then above you have one that interlocks, so there's a crown all the way around. It's beautiful, magnificent. You know, silver and gold overlaid everything, bronze, brass. This is, this is a very, very beautiful construction. The length of the court shall be 100 cubits, as we said, with 75 um, throughout this whole process. <clears throat> all the utensils of the tabernacle for its service, its pegs, and all the pegs of the court shall be bronze. So again, reflection of that judgment and uh, you know, the Lord specifically saying, this is where the sacrifices are going to take place. You shall command the children of Israel that they bring you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to cause the lamp to burn continually. The tabernacle of meeting outside the veil, is which is before the testimony. So as you enter the tent, we would say, you have that first room <clears throat> with the lampstand and the showbread. And then there's <clears throat> the veil uh, that separates the Holy of Holies in the back from this room, which is known as the holy place. So the lamp that is to be there is to have this pure oil that's being described burning in it. Um, the more pure the oil, then the less smoke that's going to be involved in that uh, lampstand that's there, and God wants this to illuminate 
that inner room. So the pure oil pressed olives for the light to cause the lamp to burn continually. In the tabernacle of meeting outside the veil, which is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening until morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to their generations on behalf of the children of Israel. Now, <clears throat> a summary. You know, look at that and maybe think like, oh, well, Old Testament description and uh, tabernacle, don't use it anymore. Uh, how do I apply this to me? What are we looking at? I think you can look at that <clears throat> pretty easily and see that the Lord is saying all of the people together, collectively, need to be involved in investing in worship and making it beautiful. Everyone needs to be involved in investing in worship and making it beautiful. I, I think that we have a mentality in the church today where we want to be served so much that we don't have that mindset of how do I invest in this. That's when the church is the healthiest. When the people that are involved in it are saying, how do I do for this body of believers? Whenever uh, people come and they start with that position of, what am I going to get out of this? Even when we do our best to try and accomplish that, because that selfishness is in their heart, there's never going to be any satisfaction. I think every one of us is old enough to know that when we behave, behave in selfish ways, we're never satisfied in the end. The satisfaction is strange. It actually comes through selflessness. That's where we receive our fulfillment. This is the fuel that we're designed to run on, is being servants of other people. You know how I know that? I mean, the scripture says it, sure. The God who created us, we're created in his image. This is how he functions. He doesn't function from a position of selfishness. He functions from a position of selflessness. If we're truly created in his image, then how we're going to experience our greatest fulfillment is in the selflessness. Investing. Sure, lots of money spent right here. What about time and energy and thought and prayer? All of those are very serious, very serious investments. Money, too. This isn't a plea for money. This is a plea for what Jesus Christ is talking about in the New Testament of there's going to come a day where we'll all worship in spirit and in truth. Here's the truth. You're reading it in God's word. Now, what's the spirit? The spirit is love. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. These people have to be selfless in their love to take from their resources and give it to this tabernacle. Think about it, you guys. They're in a wilderness. It's not like, well, I wanted to give all of this to the tabernacle to make sure that it gets built. So now that I've given all of that, I'm just going to have to go down to Home Depot and resupply for myself. They're in the wilderness. 
What they're giving up is a one-way gift. There isn't any reciprocation that they receive back other than the ability to worship the Lord with everyone from their nation. That's a payback that you can't put a price tag on. Imagine if we were just selfless in giving to the Lord, worshiping Him in an ornate way that caught the attention of the world and inspired them to worship with us. That's what this is supposed to do. Cause the people to worship the Lord and inspire the rest of them to join in that worship. I pray that's how we function. Our personal investment in worship is seen as a thing of beauty that attracts people to the worship of the Lord also. Does it make sense that this is the desire of the Lord to draw people to himself? That's what this whole focus is about. It isn't so that when he's done, God can stand up in the midst of all the other false gods and say, look how much better my temple is than all of yours. It's so that the people will see something that attracts their attention and come and find out what it is that these people are investing in that's so beautiful that they're worshiping the Lord in this way. I pray that the heart of the Lord will be our heart, and that's how the world will see us. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your love the way that you care for us. I pray that you would minister to us, that we would hear your voice, we would be led by your Spirit, that we would behave more like you every day. Work in us. Work through us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.